0: All right. Well, thank you, brother, for that introduction, and uh, thank you uh, for inviting us here to come and to be able to serve you guys. As he said, we were a part of EBC for seven years, and uh, it's been a tough season for us, but uh, EBC has been a place for us to come here and to worship and to rest and to refresh ourselves. And we've been amazingly blessed uh, by the community here and by the preaching of the word. And so uh, if we could just give back a little bit to you and impart some of that blessing back to you guys through this message. Um, so to start off, let's turn to our Bibles to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. And as you're doing that, I guess, and I'm just going to make a guess here, that it's not lost on anybody, uh, that 2020 is coming to an end. Uh, We are at the end of probably one of the toughest years that any of us have experienced, um, at least anybody that's in in my age bracket has experienced uh, in their lifetime. And and if I had to take a guess again, I would say that most of us are determined to make 2021 a better year than 2020 was, at least as much as is within our own power. With uh, COVID and all the changes that have happened over this last year uh, and the powerlessness that we've felt and all that, I think we're especially motivated to want to make things better in 2021. And even without COVID, even if that wasn't the case there, uh, this is typically the time of year uh, where we're thinking about things that we're going to do differently and better in the new year. This is a a time of new resolutions. This is a time of, of getting back to dieting and exercising and reading more books and watching a lot less TV. Uh, And also for Christians, many Christians, this is uh, the time that we carry over to to recommitments in our spiritual life and our devotions. And uh, Pastor uh, Coulter uh, mentioned that you guys are gonna be doing a new Bible reading plan. Those are awesome, those are awesome. And this is the time of year that we usually do those things. We break off the new Bible reading plan or we pledge to attend church uh, more consistently or resolve uh, to not be such strangers in our small group or to volunteer more, or to give more, or whatever it may be. And, and typically, this must also be the time where we get a, a message about recommitting to those goals, uh, the, the recommitting to the goals of the church, to the, the mission of the church, the things that we need to do better, but maybe we're not doing as well in. And there's nothing wrong with those encouragements. Bible reading plans are great, and we should be reading our Bibles. But I'm not going to do that this morning. I'm not necessarily going to talk about renewed commitments. Because I think that we already do that. I think we know, and hopefully we are examining ourselves, and we know that those areas that we need to improve in. And instead, what I want to do is I want to give us encouragement about going into those renewed commitments with the right heart attitude. Because... And please don't get me wrong, all those things are good things. Getting healthier is good things. Dieting is a good thing. You know, becoming more organized is good. Developing better spiritual disciplines are good things. And the Lord blesses us through those things. And we know that having good spiritual discipline is necessary in order to grow as Christians. And we ought to be attending church regularly and interacting with our church family. And so we, we are determined to head into a new year and to stick to the plan. Uh, But I think that we can run into a struggle sometimes with that uh, when it comes into our spiritual life because we can sometimes begin to see our commitment to those things or our lack of commitment as a measuring stick as to our standing with God. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, As it is with uh, many New Year's resolutions, the plan can sometimes go sideways after a week or two. So then we begin to feel guilty and think that God is now displeased with us because we're not hitting our daily reading according to the Bible reading plan. Or it can go the other way. Uh, We can start to become prideful in our performance. We begin to think that because we've attended church every Sunday, logged into every Zoom chat discussion, that God is now somehow smiling on us even more because we're doing Christianity right. Right? and hitting the spiritual home runs with our daily prayers and family devotions. In essence, we struggle in thinking that we have to keep up in perfect Christianity in order to have a right standing before God. But that's not biblical. Now again, all those things are good things. Doing Bible studies un- regularly is good. Praying for one another and carrying each other's burdens is good. But they are not the measuring stick. That determines our right standing with God. So this being the last Sunday before New Year, I want us to head into the New Year with a renewed commitment with a right heart. And so this morning I want us to look at a a passage of Scripture that reminds us exactly what determines a right standing before God in Philippians 3. Now, the passage that we're going to look at this morning um, is in Philippians chapter 3, and it's the first nine verses, give or take. I'm not going to go into every single verse here, uh, but I want to start out by just reading through the passage, and and we're going to pay special attention to verse 9, Philippians 3 9. So we're going to head start out, and I'm just going to read from 1 through 9 right now. We read, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now that verse, uh, Philippians 3.9, uh, may be one of the most succinct descriptions of the gospel anywhere in the New Testament. Uh, Romans might be the most thorough in explaining the gospel, uh, but Philippians contains the most economic and compact description of the gospel that we can find. And this might be called uh, the elevator pitch verse. And what I mean by that is that if you have just a minute or two to get to the very heart, the very essence of the gospel, this might be one of the best verses to go to. There are certainly others in, in the New Testament uh, that work very well, but this is a favorite of mine to go to on short notice when I have to get to the very tip of the spear, the very point of the gospel. This is the gospel in a nutshell. It contains all of the essential elements that you need to explain the gospel. Uh, our relationship between God and man, uh, our sinfulness and our need for a savior, and our response and faith. And I believe that's all here in, in Philippians 3.9. It may not explicitly uh, state and explain all of those things, but it's a central launching point to where we can get to all the essential elements of the gospel from here, with help from the surrounding text. It's got the relationship between God and man, our sinfulness, and our need for the Savior, and our response. And I'm going to attempt to walk us through that this morning. And so to begin, any time that we discuss the gospel, uh, it must start with our relationship with God. It has to. The gospel has no meaning outside of a relationship with God. Now, that might be obvious, but I I think it's worth making that distinction. Um, Some may think that it's just about getting good morals or having a a good community group or a place to have their kids grow and stay out of trouble or just to find something, anything to believe in. And for some, uh, that might be the very reason why they first started to come to church, but uh, that's okay. Um, They can come here, they can come to a church where they're preaching the gospel, and the Lord can use that to save them. But I think uh, we need to recognize right off the bat that that it is our relationship with God that is what is at stake. And the gospel addresses that relationship. And for good reason. Uh, We are all accountable to God. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2 tells us that we are created by God and therefore we are his creation and that we are accountable to him. Uh, But then Genesis 3 cannot be ignored. It's the reality that we have fallen in sin. It tells us clearly that man fell into sin and that that reality of sin separates us from God. So now what you have is you have righteous God and you have unrighteous man and an eternity separates the two. In fact, uh, the whole world, we are told, is under the curse of sin and that we are all going to come face-to-face with our Creator to whom we are all accountable and to face the consequences of sin. The Bible says that we must all appear before the judgment seat. Hebrews 9.27 is explicitly clear. It makes this point clear, that it is appointed for a man to die once and after that, judgment. Now, that's pretty serious for each and every one of us If we believe the Bible, and we should, that means that we need to make sure that when we do appear before God, that we have a right standing with him. But there's a problem. I just got done telling you a moment ago that man is fallen into sin and is unrighteous. Therefore, how can we stand before God? How can we have a right standing before God? And that, in essence... Is what the gospel is about. And that's what we're going to find here in Philippians chapter 3. Uh, the, the Philippians is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul, and he wrote to encourage the church at Philippi there to be unified in mind and spirit and rejoice in their identity as Christians. And that this newfound identity as Christians made them citizens of a kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, because Of the relationship with Christ. And we see Paul, the Apostle Paul, speaking about this relationship all over chapter 3. We read statements in the passage like this in verse 1, he says, Rejoice in the Lord. Or in verse 3, we see, uh, Worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. Verse 7, for the sake of Christ, he says. Uh, Verse 8 gets explicit with this this is because, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And again, at the end of verse 8, that leads into verse 9, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And even beyond that, in the rest of the passage, verse 10, that I may know him and share in his suffering, becoming like him. All of these verses either directly talk about or imply Paul's desire to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. But why? Why is Paul concerned with his relationship with Jesus And how does that impact our relationship with God? Well, look at that statement that ends uh, at the end of verse 8 that goes into verse 9. That's going to be the focus uh, to start off here. It says at the end of verse 8, it says, That I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul has a desire to gain Christ and be found in him. And now we see that word gain there at the end of verse 8, which means to profit or to benefit or to have some advantage from. And so Paul sees that there is a benefit, the benefit or the advantage of a relationship with Christ. But then immediately after that, Paul says something very peculiar that helps clarify what gaining Christ is. He says, uh, and this is the beginning of of verse 9, look with me. He says, to be found in him. Now what does that mean? To be found in Christ. Uh, now, linguistically, uh, that's, a, that's a strange phrase, uh, to be found in Christ. Uh, we usually don't talk about relationships in terms of being found in someone. That's very unusual language for us. Uh, but I think it's good for us to, to ask that question and think about what Paul is alluding to here in this phrase being found in him. It's important. Now, that word found that we see there means to to be discovered or to become encountered in a specific state or condition. This pertains to Paul's relationship with God, and he's speaking about the state or the condition that he will be encountered in when he stands or appears before God. And this is pivotal in our understanding of the next part of the passage because it addresses, addresses what state or condition That we all will be in when we stand before the judgment seat of God. And it can only be one of two states. It is either righteous or it is condemned. Now Paul is telling the Philippians that he sees ultimate advantage in being discovered or being encountered by God by having a relationship with Jesus Christ. But why? Well Paul is going to tell us why and he reveals the rest of the answer in the rest of verse 9 but before he tells us the positive answer of what the benefit or the advantages of being found in Christ he gives us the sobering news of why we need it and that's because we cannot and we do not have a re, a, a right relationship with God through any work of our own read that first part of uh, verse 9 with me again He says, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Now, we find here that Paul is concerned with righteousness. And he is freely admitting that he doesn't have a righteousness of his own. Now, righteousness uh, is a legal term that means uh, the status of legal rectitude that perfectly satisfies the moral requirements of God. Anyone here fit that description? No, the Bible tells us clearly in Romans 3, 9 through 11, that because of sin, there is none who is righteous. No, not one. All of us fall short in our standing before God. And so this produces a problem for us. When we stand before God, if we're not righteous, then we're condemned. So going back to Philippians 3.9, Paul is claiming that he doesn't have a righteousness of his own. But he also emphasizes here that he cannot obtain any righteousness from the law. Now again, that's a really weird phrase for us. Uh, Righteousness from the law. What does Paul mean? Uh, Now I don't have time to really cover all the different aspects of of the Old Testament law. But God had given the Israelites the Mosaic law. And and this was a law that detailed the temple sacrifices and the feasts and the observances and all those things that they were to do. And now these things were really, they were pointing forward to a savior. Uh, They were symbols of the salvation that God had promised to them. But many got caught up in thinking that working that system of religious practices gave them a right standing before God. And Jesus encountered uh, many of those uh, during his time who thought that way, particularly with a group called the Pharisees. They didn't have a true heart for God, but thought that they were righteous because they mechanically did all those things that the Mosaic law required. And because they could do all the religious practices, but inwardly their, their hearts were dead. They thought that they were righteous, though. And so what Paul is getting at here is that working a religious system and doing those things doesn't give you a righteous standing before God. It's not about having a righteousness of our own that we gain from doing our own works or keeping a strict code of conduct. Now this concept is an atom bomb in all religious thinking because it annihilates the misconception that we can somehow attain righteousness by simply following a moral code. Systematic religion is essentially done away with. Now, I think it's really important to to hit uh, hard on this point because being clear on this is essential to really understanding the whole gospel and the very essence of the gospel. Now, we're pretty far removed from the Mosaic Law here in the 21st century Um, most of us have never had any experience with uh, temple sacrifices or or the like. Uh, So I think we have a hard time somehow identifying with how we can get caught up in trying to earn righteousness from the law. But I think we can sometimes fall into it when we start to put a a lot of emphasis in our standing with God based on how we're doing Christianity. Because we're going to begin to think that because we have an impeccable church attendance, or tithe regularly, or we volunteer and serve more, that God is now smiling with favor on us because of those things. And it can be damaging in the opposite direction as well. If we aren't doing well in our devotions, or if we are struggling with some sin, or maybe we just don't have a desire to serve in some area for a while, that now that is jeopardizing your relationship and your standing with God. That it's based on your daily performance, and, and, how, and, and that's how your relationship is depending, is how you're doing Christianity today. And I think we need to be guarded with this because it can perpetuate this idea that Christianity is nothing more than a religious system to be worked. And there are far too many folks out there who claim to be Christians who basically promote a work system in order to gain God's blessing. There's a great misconception about the Christian faith. And that misconception is that Christianity is all about working a moral system. It's all about getting some good morals and living a straight moral life and doing good things. And if you do that and you walk that line very carefully and remember to observe this day and that day and tithe and go to church and and say hallelujah and amen enough and judge these people enough, then you get in. That's the great misconception that a lot of people outside the church, and maybe even some that are inside the church, have about the Christian faith. And it's dangerous on at least two different fronts. It's dangerous in that it jeopardizes one's understanding of how a person is saved. And it's also dangerous because it can promote judgmentalism amongst other Christians, When we see someone not attending or doing Christianity as well as we are. And that's how the folks outside of the church perceive the gospel. That Christians are better than they are because we carefully observe all those moral codes and conducts and follow the letter of the law. So that now we're counted worthy to go to heaven. But here, Paul blasts that misconception out of the water Uh, Here, Paul is reminding the Philippians that a right standing before God cannot be attained by relying on their own good deeds or working a religious system. And even so, even if we nailed every single list of righteous deed in our own eyes, every day perfectly, we wouldn't even begin to scratch the surface to become righteous. And if anyone thinks that they have any room to boast in their own ability, the, the apostle Paul has us all beat. Paul calls this having confidence in the flesh. And he says that there in in verse 3. Look with me. This is verse 3. This is what he says. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And then he goes on uh, to describe what he means by confidence in the flesh. This is what Paul is getting at in verses 4 through 8. And he says, starting in verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul is saying, I've got the righteous works game beat. Paul's saying, anyone thinks that he should be able to claim confidence in the flesh, which is to say confidence in our own works, well then I've got you beat, both in my heritage and in my works. He says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. This was to show that his heritage met all the requirements of the law, that he was a true Jew and that he had been circumcised exactly to the letter of the law. So there was no flaw there with him. And then he starts to boast about his own accomplishments. He says, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, that last one that he says there, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. What does Paul mean by that? Uh, Well, he's not saying uh, that he did all those right things, and because of that, now he's sinless. He's not talking about that. What he's really saying is that Judaism didn't beat him. That system did not beat him. He just didn't give up working that system because it was just too hard, and so he found an easier way in Christianity. No, he had worked that system, and he did it better than anyone else. He was blameless in that regard. He smoked the competition. There was no one better who did the, the works of the law better than the apostle Paul. And this is where he placed all of his hope and confidence in his standing before God, in his own ability to work a system to perfection. But all that changed for Paul when he became a Christian and discovered that all the things that he thought were an advantage to him, like his confidence in his flesh, really wasn't an advantage at all. He says there in verse 7, look with me again, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So here in this, in this text, we're seeing two contrasting ideas. Paul is talking about gain, and he's talking about loss. Now, we've talked about gain already earlier. And that's the benefit of the advantage. And then there is the word uh, loss, which is basically it's the opposite, is the disadvantage. And so Paul has now flip-flopped here. He's experiencing a reversal in what he sees his advantage in and what his disadvantage really is. He's saying, look... What things I saw as an advantage to me and putting my confidence in my own ability, I now understand that to have been a distinct loss to me. Now, I must emphasize that Paul is not just saying, I found an easier way. I wasn't getting the full benefit just doing it all myself. So now I've switched to a, a better, more affordable plan in order to get some extra help and to gain some extra advantage in Christ. No, it's much more sinister than that. Paul discovered that when he was putting his confidence in his own flesh, in his own works, what he now counts as loss, when he was doing that, he was working devastation to his soul. Look back at verse 6 where he mentions uh, in, in his list of grand accomplishments. He says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Now, why does he list that in there? It seems kind of out of nowhere that he just lists that fact about himself. Now, why does he do that? Well, I think he does it uh, for a couple of reasons. And first, I think it's to, to illustrate that that was the old person in Paul before he became a Christian. That's how he acted before. But I think that there's another reason is to illustrate that when he put his confidence in his own righteous works, it was actually working in direct opposition to the gospel. Putting all of his confidence in his own works was putting him in direct conflict with Christ. Paul just doesn't see those things as a mere second rate plan, but a destructive loss in opposition to the whole gospel itself. And in a little bit, we're going to see why that is. But Paul rejects all that now, and he rejects it forcefully. In fact, in verse 8, he uses some pretty strong language to describe this. He calls it rubbish. He says that I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That word rubbish here literally is rendered as dung. That's what that means, excrement. It is something that is to be expelled, it is revolting and useless. It needs to be done away with and buried in order that he may be able to now find his confidence and his advantage, his hope fully in Christ. Paul knew that having confidence in himself for righteousness was nothing but dung that needed to be expelled and buried. The bottom line is that man cannot stand in his own righteousness before God because he has none and cannot achieve it through any work of his own. So let me ask you, where are you resting? Where are you pining your hopes, pinning your hopes? Do you see those things as a a way of gaining a righteous standing before God, or do you count them as rubbish with the Apostle Paul here? So then, if man cannot stand in his own righteousness... How does he be able to stand before God? Well, Paul shows us exactly that in the rest of verse 9. Let's read all of verse 9 again. He says, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And we see that line there, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The that Paul is talking about is clarified in the last clause of verse 9. It's the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is the grand concern for his relationship with Christ. This is the heart of the reason that Paul desires to be found in him. This is what it means to be found in Christ. And this is the very tip of the spear of the gospel. It's to stand before God covered in the righteousness of God of Jesus Christ. And it's glorious to the point of being almost unimaginable if it weren't for the grace of God to talk about it in the Bible. It's so absolutely radical that man would never come up with it because it nullifies every effort of our own. It says that all of our efforts to save ourselves are useless and are like dung and filthy rags it's from the Isaiah 64 passage. It completely annihilates all hope in anything that we can do as far as any works of moral righteousness. And it pins it entirely on trusting Christ for the righteousness that can only come from God. And this is unique to Christianity. Christianity. No other religious system in the world has any power to save because they all, in some form or another, place the ultimate deciding factor of salvation in a man's ability to work a religious system. And the gospel rejects that notion entirely. But how can that be? How can it it be that we can gain the righteousness of Christ through faith? Well, here it is. God has always known that man is unable to save himself. Man is sinful and all his efforts fall short of the glory of God. He has no righteousness of his own. So in order to be able to stand righteous before God, he needs righteousness from somewhere else, from someone else. So God sent his son on our behalf to live the righteous life we fail to live and he lived it perfectly he never sinned once and then he took the punishment that sin deserves and all of us deserves on our behalf the passage here in philippians 2 5 through 8 details this perfectly You see, he was obedient in our place. And Paul has a, a wonderful summation of these two sections in 2 Corinthians 5.21 and another amazingly succinct statement. This is 2 Corinthians 5.21. Many of you might recognize this. This is used in the Chris Tomlin song. It says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, faith in him, we might become the righteousness of God. This is the glorious free gift of the righteousness that is from God. This is what theologians theologians call the imputed righteousness of Christ. Now that's a a funny term, imputed. Uh, We don't just use that term every day. Um, So what does imputed mean? Well, uh, imputed is an accounting term. It means to attribute to or credit to, ascribe to one's account on one's behalf. And so to describe this gift of received righteousness from God through faith, it's likened to this official legal accounting term, imputed. It's like having an enormous insurmountable debt that is so overwhelmingly large that it's impossible to, replay, to repay. And our account is infinitely overdrawn. We owe to the point of it being a crushing debt, impossible to repay, to repay. And no good deed can possibly repay it. So then in an act of God's grace, the entire amount is paid for. All that we owe, all that debt is wiped clean. We didn't earn it, and we didn't pay for it. Jesus Christ did. His obedience and righteousness all the way to the death of the cross was given, or it was imputed to our account on our behalf. And it was all based on the righteous work of Jesus Christ. Jesus paid it all. It's hard to to, to fathom this. What would be your reaction if you woke up tomorrow and everything that you owed, everything was paid for? And not only what you owe now, but also any debt that you will incur for the rest of your life. Would you rejoice? If I convinced you that you could find a treasure trove in your backyard that was so full of treasure that all your current and future debts would be covered, would you seek it out? Would you go in your backyard this afternoon and go look for it? That would be something worth, that would be worth something to you. I think all of us, if we found that, we would be jumping for joy. And we have to remember that, that the Apostle Paul grounds the letter to the Philippians in even the beginning of this chapter, uh, reminding us to rejoice in the Lord. That's the very first thing that we read, rejoice in the Lord. Paul soaks the letter of Philippians with reminders to rejo- rejoice in who we are as Christians because of what of Christ has done for us. There are 16 different mentions of joy or rejoicing in the letter to the Philippians. And so it's important to understand where this joy and rejoicing comes from. Now, if we go back in our text, if we go back to verse 8 in Philippians chapter 3, Paul is speaking about gain and loss. And he says at the beginning of verse 8, read it with me again. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul is telling us in a a deeply personal way the value in having a relationship with Jesus. This statement is so personal that's the only place in all of Paul's writing where he refers to Christ in the first person singular. He says that it is Christ Jesus, my Lord. And that's powerful. Paul is showing us how meaningful and how valuable having a right understanding of the gospel is and the intimate relationship that he, he has with Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And I think that the way that he's saying Christ Jesus my Lord conveys a personal gratitude and a joy that he finds in the gospel. And this reminds me of Matthew 13, 44. Just listen to how this reads in lieu of what I just said. And Jesus, Jesus describes the kingdom of heaven like this. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. That's Matthew 13, 44. Jesus is telling us exactly what receiving the Gospels is like. Now, he's putting it in human terms. So that we can identify with it, with our experience. He's not implying that we have to go and we purchase it ourselves and we pay for it ourselves. He's telling us that those who receive the gospel is like finding the most valuable thing that you could have. And then joyfully giving up all the things you previously held in higher value in order to obtain it. Paul held his own righteousness from the law as most valuable. But then upon discovering the true meaning of the gospel, a treasure that surpasses all others, he joyfully gives all that up and by faith receives the righteousness of Christ. And the righteousness from God can only be received by faith. The text says that the righteousness from God, that depends on faith. Faith is trusting in the grace of God for salvation in Jesus. It is all of grace. Grace. It is dependent, meaning that it hinges entirely on faith. And it must be. If there are no righteous acts of our own that can merit anything, that excludes all work, then it has to be on faith because of God's grace. Grace plus any work of our own is not grace. Our trust in Christ is that he fulfilled all righteousness completely and he paid the entire debt of our sin in full. We cannot do anything to add to it. And to try to is to run in complete opposition to God's grace and his design of the gospel. That's why I mentioned earlier that Paul found that in trying to rest in his own work and his own standing was in direct conflict with Christ Because to do that, to rely on his own work, would be to nullify the grace of God and to show Christ's work as insufficient and meaningless. And Paul writes in the letter to the Galatians, this is a a pivotal verse in my understanding of the gospel, this is Galatians 2, 20 and 21. Paul writes, and this sums it up, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me And gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. It is trusting fully in the righteousness of Christ, putting all confidence in Christ's work, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. And through our faith in him, we have the hope of new life and the resurrection in him. That is the complete gospel. That is what it means to be a Christian. Not trusting in a righteousness of our own, but trusting in the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now someone might say, well, what about repentance? Where does repentance fit into all this? Well... It's all over the passage. Paul's personal testimony is an illustration of repentance. It's rejecting all confidence in yourself to save you from your sin and putting all trust and confidence in the finished work of Christ. It's turning away from, that's what repent means, to turn away from, turning away from trust in yourself and agreeing with God that he is your only hope of righteousness. And that's the hope that we have when we stand before him. Not standing in ourselves and our own good deeds, but being found in him, in Jesus as your righteousness that is received by faith. Many mistake repentance as merely being stop sinning or turning away from sin. Now that's part of sanctification. But if salvation were based on our ability to stop sinning, then literally no one could be saved. And that's a deep, dark hole that we as Christians tend to get ourselves stuck in. Uh, We attempt to try to make up for our deficiencies when we experience guilt over sin or backsliding. Or we feel ashamed that we're not reading enough or taking part in church events enough or tithing enough or being the perfect parent or a perfect teacher or a perfect leader in, in your household. And so we resolve to do better. We resolve to put an extra effort in order to appease our guilt and perhaps get a little smile down from God for doing Christianity better this week. And for a moment, we get a little charge and we pat ourselves in the back. But then we start to backslide again and we don't do so well. And our sinful wandering from God starts to overwhelm us again. And so to correct that, we try and redouble our own efforts. And before we know it, we can get into a depressing cycle and it can absolutely steal our joy. So when we approach our new year and begin to renew our Bible reading plan and church attendance and you have faith and optimism that God will use that to grow you. But remember also that doing those things well or failing in them is not what determines your right standing before God. Do not shrink back because you fail. Do not shrink back because you sin and feel unworthy. If you are busted over your sin, go to your master and confess that. And then glory in thankfulness and rejoice in your Savior, Jesus Christ, who has given you the righteousness from God. God is not pleased with you because you're doing perfect Christianity. He is not pleased with you because you're attending church more or giving more or reaching out more or being the perfect parent. God is pleased with you for one reason and one reason only. And that's because you are walking in faith in Jesus Christ and putting all your trust in his righteousness. And when you do that, then you can have confidence in your standing with God. Because when you're standing in Christ, God truly sees you with the righteousness of his son. Would you pray with me? Lord, Father in heaven, Lord, again, to hear the gospel, Lord, it moves us. Lord, I thank you so much for the righteousness of Jesus. I thank you for exposing our hearts to the reality that we do not have a righteousness of our own. I thank you that you looked upon us with pity and mercy and that you, by your grace and your infinite wisdom and your majestic mercy, sent your Son to do all those things that we fail to do and then go to the cross and bear the whole wrath of God on our behalf. Lord, it's unthinkable that we would be gifted the righteousness that we have not earned. Lord, we thank you so much for it. I pray, Lord, that we would have a renewed sense of understanding exactly what the gospel is, what our right standing is before God, before you. I pray, Lord, for those who are struggling with sin, that are counting themselves unworthy, that they do not want to come before you and pray and confess those things, Lord, that you would just give them a renewed effort and understanding that it's not about their own performance. It's about being broken over their own sin and coming to you to receive the gift of grace, to get the righteousness that is from Christ. I pray for those who are in this room now that do not know you, that they would have a clear understanding of the gospel, that they would know that it's not about keeping up perfect appearances, and that we all struggle with sin. But Lord, it is about faith and and about putting our trust in you and in you alone. Lord, I thank you for the gospel, and I thank you for Jesus, and I thank you for giving us the Bible that tells us in this passage that clearly lays it out for us. Pray that you would use this to change hurts and that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.